Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. How do you sum up the life of someone we've lost to COVID-19? There was nothing that you could think of that she wouldn't have an answer for. Like she had an answer for everything. Maybe because of his stature, like he was kind of the protector. I think of her laugh, just laughing over nothing. One time Clarence uh, traveled to uh, Harlem to sing at the Apollo. Everything was a learning experience for her. She wanted us to learn from it. So, you know, if you're going to learn, why don't you do it in style (laughs) and have fun doing it? My father, for me, was a person who would reassure me. And I keep finding myself wanting to call him. He said, Mom, I bought this gift for you. And then there was this last present that he gave to his mother. I'm Kyone Wolf. Hear stories about those we've lost on the final episode of Us and the Time of Coronavirus. After the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is the ninth and final episode of Us in the Time of Coronavirus. I'm Kyone Wolf. Stay tuned till the end of the show, and you'll hear a preview of the series that'll follow this one. We have surpassed 100,000 deaths in our country, and at the time of this recording, there are 3,826 deaths in Connecticut. These numbers aren't just numbers. They're mothers, daughters, sisters, fathers, brothers, and sons, grandmas and grandpas best friends. Today you'll hear about what made them laugh, what gave them purpose, how it feels to lose them, and what deep, long-lasting marks they've left on the friends and family who remember them with me. Meet East Haddam's Henry Myron Aldrich through his daughters Vicki Aldrich Fuel and Jesse Strassman. Henry Hank was an only child born in Connecticut and described in his obituary as optimistic, honest, dependable, and straightforward. He was 77. I asked Vicki and Jesse what kind of person their dad was. You'll hear Vicki first. When I think of my dad and how other people might see him, I think of him as always having a smile on his face and having a personality in the room and always wanting to meet people in a very gregarious and fun-loving way. Jesse? Well, the first thing I think of is he was very tall. He was a good-looking guy. People used to say he little he looked a little bit like a young JFK. And he um, had this kind of imposing presence, I think, because of his stature. He kind of, maybe because of his stature, like he was kind of the protector. You know, he was for sure was the patriarch of the family. When he walked into a room, you knew he was there. He was really likable, wouldn't you say? Yes. And he had a booming voice. So to your point, he would never be the wallflower in the room. He'd come out to Berkeley and we'd have like a dinner party and it didn't matter where he was. He'd be like, hey, I'm Hank Aldrich. What do you do? And he could, he knew a lot about everything. So he could strike up a conversation. So people found him to be very charismatic, very easy to talk to. Afterward, they say, your dad is such a nice guy. You know, so there was that warmth about him. Now, One thing that was obviously really important to him was being on a boat. What was it about boating that you think really captured his heart and his soul? 
For me, it was rooted in his family. The Aldrich side of the family had been in New England since right after the Mayflower. And he, from a young age, his grandfather and the grandfather before him were fishermen. And they used to fish and sell the fish to make extra money to support their family. So kind of back in the day. His mind raced so quickly. There were so many ideas. And he was like a fast mover, pacer kind of guy. But I think being on the water was like his meditation. It was very calming for him. It was the one place in the world where he could go out alone. He could go out with friends and just kind of breathe and provide this meditative opportunity for him. And I don't think he was a particularly spiritually guru-y kind of guy. He was a more traditional guy, but I don't know, Vic, do you think that that was kind of a meditative place for him on the water? It also is a lot of fun, I think. You know, he had a boat at, you know, a young, young age, and he was zipping around the Connecticut River with his buddies and raising a little bit of hell, and he kind of liked that. They called themselves the River Rats, which I thought was really funny. So there was definitely this, the love of the water also spoke to that kind of adrenaline-seeking, fun side to my dad. It provided a place he could be joyful. Is it okay if I ask about his death at the end of his life what happened he was always someone who was always looking on the bright side and he was super optimistic and took really good care of himself but didn't really talk about things that were really bothering him and he had some symptoms we think of covid the ones you hear about a lot the cough and the the fever um but he wasn't tested for it and he fainted one night, um, about a week after, from best we can gather, um, his symptoms began and his wife, um, our stepmom, took him to the hospital and he was admitted. I felt very fortunate to be able to talk with him in the hospital room before he went on the ventilator. And we didn't really know what was going to happen. So we were able to just tell him things we really wanted to say, like, we love you. You are a really good dad. And things like that. For me, the most heartbreaking part of this was, um, you know, he was always there for us, right? He's always protected us or would get us out of jams or just always make things better or tell us we could do it in hard times of life. And um, we couldn't do that for him when he was in the hospital. We couldn't sit with him and comfort him and tell him he's got this. And um, it just felt so unnatural and it was just so so hard to grieve and comfort him and um i don't know how to make sense of that but i think talking a lot about him and hearing his friends stories and my sister's tribute that she put together it helps heal a lot to hear that he touched so many people's lives but um that was very difficult I take comfort in the fact that he died the way he wanted to. He was in charge of his whole path at Middlesex. He very much wanted to try the ventilator. He knew the risks of the ventilator. We were able to speak with him, like Vicki said, during the first week and have a lot of very meaningful end-of-life type conversations. I think we both felt a lot of peace and comfort 
but he said, I got to do this, Jess. Remember, Vic, we were on the call together because we were like, okay, dad, it looks like they're taking you to this other, yep, yep, yep. They're going to put me on the vent. I got to try it. I'm going for it. Like it was still him totally present in this experience. Jesse and I worked really hard to, um, as things got close to the end, to really try to honor what he wanted so it could things could be on his terms. And, um, you know, some of it wasn't what I wanted for sure. You know, for example, he had a DNR order that he had put in place years and years ago. And, um, of course, I, you know, we wanted him to be around longer. But um, I think we tried to do what he wanted so that it wasn't about us, but it was about him. And um, I think that that's one of the special things he taught us is that, you know, it's more about the other person than about yourself. And I'm just going to work really, really hard to carry that forward, that spirit forward. If you could spend a day with him in good health, what would that day be like? It would be um, going out on his boat and having him take us to all his favorite places, maybe fishing. I don't like fishing, but it was important to him. So maybe having him show me just listening to his jokes and his sarcasm and his stories. That would be a gift. So I didn't know you didn't like fishing. That's hysterical to me because literally our entire childhood was spent fishing and getting the eels and the worms. And it's just funny to me that you never liked that. Yeah, I did no. not know that. My last day with him, and I actually have been thinking about this a little bit, is we would go to Point Judith where we spent our summers and we would go to Aunt Carrie's restaurant and pick up a bag, a greasy bag of clam cakes, which was one of his favorite foods. And I might even convince him to go across the street and get the doughboys, which is another one of his favorite foods. He was not always the healthiest eater. And we'd drive out Ocean Road to Point Judith Lighthouse and we'd sit in the parking lot of the lighthouse because we used to drive there as kids all the time. And I might finally listen to his advice because I think as an adult, we've tried to make our own lives and I'd love to just be sitting in the parking lot. It's gonna make me cry. And look at that lighthouse and eat that clam cake and hear him saying, Jess, you really need to put all your money in the bond market because the bond market is where it's at right now. And I would give anything for that. <laughs> is there anything you want to make sure that you say that I haven't asked you about? I'd really like to say thank you to you and to my sister for Okay, now it's my turn. <laughs> We've cried a lot this week, so just add it to the buckets, yeah. Thank you for the chance to think about him in a different way and share and honor his memory with you, someone who doesn't know him, because um, it helps me think about him in a different way, too. And I'm really honored to be able to share my story. I'd also like to say for all of us to please I hadn't planned on saying this but please take this seriously it's not a kind virus and it'll pull people away from you who you love and it um, won't allow you to do the things that you really want to do when someone you love is hurting so please just listen to 
what people recommend. I am sailing. I am sailing home again. Cross the sea. That was Vicky Fuel and Jesse Strassman remembering their dad, Hank Aldrich, who died on May 16th. Loretta Headley was born on Christmas Day in 1939 and worked for over 33 years as a dietary assistant at Hartford Hospital. Her friend Sandra Tate Eady from Hartford remembers how she met Loretta. When um, my parents and I had gone to a party, I met a young man and he subsequently invited me to a party at his house where he was living. And it turns out it was Loretta's birthday party. And her birthday is at Christmas. So I know it was like around Christmas time. And the first time we met, I just remember this bubbly and fun and friendly and warm woman um, who danced all night. And you could tell she really enjoyed celebration. You had also mentioned she had at one time had a, a house on Madison Street, which was literally down the street where she worked as a dietary assistant at Hartford Hospital for over 33 years. And she, quote, turned it into a welcoming refuge for family and friends, replete with opulence, style, and of course, meals and laughter. And you said she would host Christmas at her place. And Christmas was also her childhood nickname because it was her birthday. So will you talk about what you remember about the way she used to use her home to make people feel good and the way that she would celebrate her birthday and this really important holiday. Okay. So I just had all these chills run through me because I didn't realize that I had, um, I had um, so adequately characterized what her home became. Um, First of all, she moved to live near her job because her job was important to her, her family at Hartford hospital, even though she's been retired a long time, they still ask about her. She would bring them food. Um, she just ministered in food. Like she just loved to cook and she loved to feed people. And so when you would go to her house, you were usually going expecting to eat and eat well. <laughs> and, um, and not only during the holidays, I mean, anytime you needed a pick me up, um, you could drop by. She loved seeing people because she lived alone. And um, you can be sure that she could go into her freezer and just pull out something and whip you up a plate. She knew that her food was good, and she knew that that was a way for her to connect with people. You also said she would tell stories about her life growing up in Barbados. What kind of things would she tell you? She grew up in Barbados, and she grew up in a um, a small parish called St. Peter. Before she left to come to America, she was a shopkeeper. And a shopkeeper would have access to the entire village, right? Villages would come and shop with that with her, and there'd be men hanging out because most of our shops would have like a bar area, and the men would be in the bar, and she would be facilitating all these dynamics. And so she would tell me the stories about the men drinking. The ones that she particularly liked was all the cheers that they would do as they were drinking. She also talked about the fact that her mom passed away when she was just 13. And so she didn't get to know that side of the family as well. And because of that, she also was independent very young. So coming to America and 
you know, starting as a dietary aide and with that salary being able to purchase their own home and provide for her children, you know, that meant a lot. And she was very proud of what she was able to accomplish. You had mentioned, too, that she wanted help writing her story. Was she planning on writing a memoir? Will you tell me more about that? I am sure that what she was talking about was writing her obituary and making sure her epitaph, her, her story, yeah, so that it would reflect who she was and not someone else's version of her. Like I said, I've known her for so long and I've seen her in so many different situations. I think she knew that I kind of knew and could express who she was. I would just say God works in mysterious ways. Um, The fact that now a lot more people will get to hear about this big and beautiful and loving and joyous personality in the person of Loretta Headley. Thank you. Thank you. That was Sandra Tate Eady, remembering her friend Loretta Headley, who died on April 24th. This is a song written by Loretta's nephew, Chris Goodman. After the break, we'll hear more stories about people in our state who we've lost to COVID-19. I'm Kyone Wolf. Stay with me on Us in the Time of Coronavirus. This is Us in the Time of Coronavirus. I'm Kyone Wolf. On this final episode of our series, you're hearing stories about some of the people our state has lost due to COVID-19. Meet Newington's Jonathan Ferreira. He was just 26 years old when he died. He had a quick wit, he loved going to Comic-Cons, and he was devoted to his parents and friends. His father, Paolo Ferreira, told me what Jonathan was like as a kid. Jonathan was always a happy kid, always with a smile on his face. He loved reading books. He used to spend most of his summers back in Portugal with our family. He was a really happy kid, and he was a really good, fun, and happy kid. What did his Portuguese heritage mean to him? Was it a prominent part of his life, or yes, he really, he really loved being Portuguese, and he was proud of it, and from our history and. He always attend Portuguese uh, church with us. He attend Portuguese school. He graduated with scholarships from Portuguese school, and then he um, used to go to CCD. And he loved the vacations back home in Portugal with his aunts and uncle and grandparents. Is it okay if I ask about the end of his life? Yes. When did you know that something was really wrong with him? He was working. People at Home Depot, they, the old, especially the older cashiers and stuff, they decided not to go to work because they were afraid of getting sick. But Jonathan was working every day. He was two weeks in a row. So one day he came home and told us, I'm so tired. I can't go back to work tomorrow. They asked me if I can go to work tomorrow, but I can't. And then he didn't win. And that same day, that same Monday, he started having fever. On Tuesday, 
he called a doctor and the doctor told him there was the symptoms of the virus. And so he could go to get the papers to go do the test. He went there on Wednesday to do the test in the morning. They sent them back, said they were run out of tests. He went on Thursday, they sent them back again because they were out of tests. He went at 3.30 in the morning on Friday and finally was able to do the test. By Saturday, he started having a little breathing trouble. Uh, he already had lost his smell and his taste, and he started having a little breathing trouble. Monday morning, I saw that he wasn't getting good at all, so he went to the hospital on the 13th of April. Um, so in the beginning, was the first week was kind of rough, but then the things were starting to improve, and they started getting better, and it was getting better and better. And one day, his blood pressure just completely dropped. They had nothing else they could do anymore. And if if we wanted to say our goodbyes, they so they FaceTime, and he was it looked so peaceful, but he was there. So we were able to say the, our goodbyes to him. The nurses said that they he could hear us talking to him. This was around five o'clock in the morning, and then they end up. Um, disconnecting all the tubes and everything, and then in pass away uh, around seven o'clock in the morning. How do you make any sense of any of this? He was just twenty-six years old. It's very difficult, especially that he was our only son. We also we are glad that Jonathan did everything possible and impossible to them get us contaminated. He said, Daddy, can you make me a room downstairs? So I made a room for him, and he had, like, his own apartment. Uh, every time that I had to bring our food or some medicine or something to him, he'll go into his only room, and I'll leave the things in a, you know, open area and a table. Even if I come up to the top of the stairs and look to see how he's doing, he'll say, Daddy, get out of here. Don't risk your life for me. So he did everything possible and impossible to keep us safe to stay because he understand how seriously the the virus was. And that was the kind of person he was to want to protect yes, you and that, care for he, you. Uh, yes, that's exactly the kind of person Jonathan was. You'll do anything for anybody. You'll risk his own life for anybody else's. Is there a piece of his clothing or jewelry or something of his? I have high school ring. Uh, his graduation high school ring when he graduated from high school. I'm going to keep it for myself. He was texting his friends. If I die, you take this. Uh, the other person will take this. I understand that your son gave his mother a last gift. What was that? Yes. In his last day of work, Jonathan came home with a, a flower, a high ranger, a pinky high ranger. Because, you you know, his mother loved flowers, so he came over home with it and said, Mom, I bought this gift for you. It was the last one that we had at Home Depot. And I know you love flowers and you love the pink one, so I bring it for you. I bought it for you. And then that was his last day of work, and then it was his last present that he gave to his mother. So we have him planted in our flower bed in the front of the house in his memory. Is there anything else that you want to make sure that you say that I haven't asked you about? He was a, a lovely son, and uh, I miss him very much. My wife, she miss him a lot. They were attached. Him with me, he loved me, and I love him, 
but with his mother it was totally different. And he loved his mother, and his mother loved him a lot. So for her, double hard. That was Paolo Ferreira remembering his son, Jonathan Ferreira, who died on May 1st. Laura Gancy told me about her father, Michael Gancy, 74, of Newington. He was born in Brooklyn, took a deep pride in his Sicilian roots, and he was a natural-born teacher. She told me about the last time she heard from him. My last text from him was the 18th, and it just said, got corona. I just wrote this whole thing about, like, I love you, and um, he just wrote back, love you. They intubated him, which was really difficult for all of us because... We knew that he wouldn't want that, but we, my mother made the executive decision that, you know, if intubating him could give him a chance of coming back, then we needed to do it. So he, he began to decline. His doctor was extremely warm. He called each one of us and we were able to say goodbye through his cell phone that he had in a plastic bag on speakerphone. When the doctor called you for that call, did you know that's what that call was? Um, my mom called us and said, this is what is going to happen right now. The doctor is shortly going to call each of you one by one. We had to call the next person to let them know that the doctor was about to call, I think. So I said goodbye to my dad and I was really disappointed by like the awkwardness of it. And kind of like, I didn't feel like I really got to say what I would have said if I was next to him. And, you know, obviously wanted to hold, be holding his hand and, um, calling my sister and letting her know it was her turn. We're identical twins. And like, that was one of the hardest things I've ever, and we're also like extremely, we were extremely close with both my parents. I warned her that it would be awkward. And I said, I walked away feeling like I didn't say everything I wanted to say. So make sure that you don't have make that same mistake. I don't remember how long after we spoke to him, they just made him comfortable. Who called you to tell you that he had died? My mom. My mom called all of us. When you picked up that phone call from your mom, did you know? Yeah. What did that feel like? <sighs> I felt like there was something wrong with me because of how little I was emoting. And um, I've now reflected on that and realized that it was just, I was in shock. I didn't fall apart, you know, but I, I mean, I would say my initial feeling was anger. And I, I still struggle with it, but like that week, that was the feeling that bubbled the most was just absolute rage. And as the shock is worn off a bit, it's now just sadness. I think the, the part about it that sucks the most is um, my father, for me, was a person who would reassure me when I felt anxious about the world and things that I can't control. And um, I keep finding myself wanting to call him to make me feel like everything's going to be okay. And he's not there. And um, that's the weird part is like he had this mantra that he, he stole from a Max Ehrman poem called The Siderata, but he, I didn't know that until much later. Whenever he would like advise me or kind of like see that I was having a hard time, he would always just say, the universe is unfolding exactly. 
as intended, which the real line in the poem is the universe is unfolding exactly as it should. And we've like had philosophical conversations about the difference in like that verbiage, like intended kind of like denotes that there's a higher power, right? That's that has the puppet strings and should is just sort of this acceptance of being, which is funny because he changed it to be more like higher power. And the original term is a lot more like should is a lot, kind of like makes more sense if you knew, knew my dad and sort of like who he is, you know, he was a very like, okay, very Zen kind of thinker. But I find myself trying to remember that, you know, like, I feel like he left me with some real good jumping off points from kind of like, what is going on? You know, <laughs> what, what yeah. do we do in this situation? Was there a song or an artist, a musical artist that he really loved? Yeah, actually, it's funny that you asked that. So the song that he told my sister and I over and over again that he loved was Somewhere Over the Rainbow. And he, I think, specifically loved the um, Ava Cassidy version of it, which is really, really pretty. And he would always be like, you need, you should learn this song. And, you know, Nina and I would be like, all right, dad, one day we'll get around to it. We actually learned it a few weeks ago. And like, we each recorded a version of it on our phones. And we tried to kind of stitch it together. And we made a little video as kind of a little memorial to him. I don't know if he was like trying to hint that that's what he would want played at, but he also didn't really want a funeral. Like he sort of wanted maybe like a celebration of his life, but he didn't really want it to be structured in the the way that traditional funerals are, which he ended up kind of getting his wish in a way. Yeah. I mean, nobody wants to die like in the fashion that he died, but in a sense, there's a little bit of peace because, you know, he didn't want there to be a huge everyone to pile into a room and have to walk by his casket. And, you know, he didn't want any of that. He didn't want his death to be traumatic in that way. So in a sense, he got what he wanted. You were hesitant to talk to me. And I wonder what made you say yes. Initially, I think my family, my siblings especially, are at a point where they're like, no more talking to any kind of media, anything because we had a couple of people that we were speaking to in the beginning and it was, it was an option outside of a, a memorial. And um, the reason I decided to talk to you is because my dad was um, one of the most important people in my life. And I want to take every possible opportunity to, um, to talk about him in the hopes that, I mean, it's healing for me and um that, you know, anyone else that might be feeling this loss knows that they're not alone and um, that these are deeply traumatic times, even if you're not experiencing a loss. And I just hope that we all can learn how to be vulnerable for with each other and that it's okay. And um, I don't want to move forward without having had a celebration of his life and feel like I missed any opportunity to uh, talk about how special he was to me and um, speak to his legacy, basically. And I'm very thankful for the opportunity. That was Laura Gancy, remembering her dad, Michael Gancy. You're hearing her singing with her twin sister, Nina. Michael died on March 21st.
Next, meet Regina Graham of Bloomfield. She was a Girl Scout leader and devoted to her church and taught children in our state for decades. Regina in Latin means queen. And according to her granddaughter, Sarah Thompson, that was entirely appropriate for her. Sarah said Regina balanced her six children and her career and that she was always in her prime. To me, the prime was when she was a shining example of being not only a loving mother and a grandmother, but a very strong, influential, professional woman. You wrote in your Facebook post, I know how to savor the finer things in life because (laughs) of you. Tell me more about that. What did you mean? I want to say I was about 14, maybe I was 13. She put out a request, I would say, or a challenge to myself and my siblings. Whoever would write a letter to her explaining what would we do for a day in New York City with her. If we wrote that to her and outlined it, she would take us. But I wrote, you know, I would love to go to the Met and I would love to see a Broadway show and I would love to go to a French restaurant, thinking that we would do maybe one. No, we did everything on the list. She just didn't stop there. She didn't say, no, we'll go to the Met and then we'll grab a hot dog on the street. No, we're going to go to the French restaurant and order in French. And But the overarching umbrella to all of that, the finer things, I really think is that everything was a learning experience for her. She wanted us to learn from it. So, you know, if you're going to learn, why don't you do it in style (laughs) and have fun doing it? So, Will you talk about her grin? Oh, her grin. Oh, her grin. (laughs) Her grin was one of joy. It was a grin that if she had a piece of fudge and she enjoyed it, she would kind of put her head back and grin and put her fork down and just just kind of take it in. Ah, yes, this is what it's all about. Where she was just completely satisfied in the moment. It brings me joy to reminisce about her grin because I believe that that grin was times when she was most at peace and most joyful, but it was a subtle grin at times. Is it okay if I ask about the end of her life? Sure, yeah. When did you know that something was really wrong with her? So she wasn't feeling well. And I remember speaking to her at one point and she said, I just feel like I can't stop shaking. And I said, oh, okay, well, maybe that's because you have a fever or you know, you're just not feeling well. She said, oh, is that what this is? Because I've never felt like this before. And I remember thinking, for someone who had been a leader and who had been so strong, there's so much of her life. To say that just struck me, that she was experiencing something not to be taken lightly. And so after that, she, she had tested positive for coronavirus, and she just um, fought. <laughs> she fought for 22 days, 93 years old. And we were able to visit her from outside the window. And so within 24 hours of that visit, She had peacefully passed away while she was napping, which we're thankful for. But yeah, it was just a very um, quick and very difficult, very, very difficult to not be able to hug her or to see her. So it's a totally different kind of situation to be coping with and to be grieving through when someone is passing away during this time. So we're still (laughs) navigating that, but um, it's been hard. What else do you want to make sure that people know about Jean? 
I believe that things always happen for a reason. And she was such a social butterfly and someone who would have loved to have a line out the door at her memorial celebration and would have loved to see people gathering together in droves, which believe me, they will when the time comes. But, but had this not happened, I wouldn't have had this interview with you and I wouldn't have had an opportunity to share in a different way. And I think that that's such a unique way to honor her because now maybe even more people will hear about my grandmother and maybe, and not just to talk about her, but to, to honor her and to have her, you know, encourage other women to be leaders or encourage other women to be both mothers and career women and to not limit yourself and to travel and to see the world and to hold tight to traditions. I mean, that's something we didn't talk a whole lot about, but anything that somebody could glean from this, you know, this little conversation that you and I are having that can then carry forward for their families, that's better to me than any one day celebration that we could have for her. You know, her name can kind of live on through these other stories of inspiration for other people. So, and like to not give up, don't give up. That's what she would always say is just, just keep going and I'm always in your corner. So if someone needs a Jean Graham to say that in their ear because they don't have a grandmother to say it, that's what I want them to hear is don't give up, you can do it. That was Sarah Thompson remembering her grandma Jean Graham who died on May 2nd at the age of 93. After the break, we'll hear two more stories about people we've lost to COVID-19, and I'll reveal the name and premise of our new show. I'm Kyone Wolf, and this is Us in the Time of Coronavirus from Connecticut Public Radio. Stay with us. This is Us in the Time of Coronavirus. I'm Kyone Wolf. On our final show, we're hearing stories about people we've lost to COVID-19 in our state. So meet Waterbury's Rita Noonan through her granddaughter, Amanda Thiessen. Rita was born in Maine, the youngest of 13 children. And she grew up during the Great Depression, and she was married to the love of her life, Raymond, for 54 years. My grandfather passed away 15 years ago. It was really surreal when he passed away because there was never any Rita without Ray. Every part of her life was connected to him. They just really like had a like a really beautiful love. Um, so after he passed away, it was really interesting because I really didn't think she would make it that long. Like I just didn't think she would be able to hold on, but it's incredible to me that she managed 15 years without him. And I think the most comforting part of all of this for me is the idea that they're reunited and continuing their love story on another plane, wherever that is. What was she like? Like if, if I got to meet her, how would she greet me? What would it be like if, if I got to hang out with her for the first time? My grandmother loves to talk. Like she'll, she'll, she would kind of talk to anybody always. Once you got her going, like, see you later. Like you're going to be with her all day long, you know? 
I think if you met her, she would have you come sit down next to her and she'd want to hear about your job and she'd want to hear about how you get to work and she'd want to hear about like what your workplace looks like. You know, she was very, she really, she always asked questions that no one else ever really asked. So you're saying that she'd make a really good public radio host? Yeah. (laughs) Yes, maybe I am saying that. I like that. But, you know, she was also just in those very conversational moments too. She was just always very joyful and um, laughing and smiling, even though in the later parts of her life when there was a lot of pain, like every time I saw her, it was just her having a good time. It was just her like living and enjoying her moments. Um, So I think if you met her, you would really feel that and she would just know everything about you by the time you were done. When you go to bed at night and you close your eyes and you think about her, what do you see? Like, what does her face look like? What does her voice sound like? I I think when I think about her, I probably think about, like, how she looked when, like, I was a child. She was very, you know, obviously she had the lipstick, but also she, she got her hair done weekly. And she, oh my gosh, the Aquanet her hair would come straight up like this. That's the woman that I think about when I like picture her in my head, when I close my eyes, I think of her laugh. We just used to laugh until she would have tears. Her and my grandfather, just tears streaming down their face, just laughing over nothing, like dumb kid things when we were little. So I just think I, that's who I picture. I picture her smiling and laughing the day after she died. I tend to think for me, at least closure always comes in one way or another. And, the day after she died, I got up really early in the morning. I couldn't sleep. And I was kind of in that weird sleep awake state. The night before I had talked to my sister and she has two kids, Jameson, he's the youngest, he's four. But um, Ashley told him that, he, that his great grandmother had passed away. He cried. And then she said later he was in the bath and he said, you know, it's so sad when you lose someone you love. And it just like, oh gosh, just, you know, from the mouths of babes, they just have such a firm grip on life. And, you know, all this stuff was floating around my head and I was in this strange state and I had a dream that I was in my kitchen and Jameson, who had a really adorable relationship with my grandmother, he loved like playing with her. I was standing over Jameson and hugging him. And then my grandmother came up behind us and told us, that she loved us and she was in that you know big hair jovial state that I remember her in when I was a kid dream a dream that was Amanda Thiessen remembering her grandma Rita Noonan who died on April 25th Lou Brown of Hartford may be a familiar name to many of us Connecticutians. He was also known as NBC Connecticut investigative reporter Downtown Lou Brown. His brother Clarence Otis Brown died from COVID-19 at the age of 79. And then just 17 days later, his sister Dolores Brown Allen died from non-COVID-related causes. She was 72, and he told me that Dolores Lolo had this unflappable respect for humanity, and she made everybody feel special that she was a mother figure in her church community, and that she always looked on the bright side of things. Clarence, Chuck, was a sharp dresser, 
with a flirtatious side who loved wearing the perfect hat. Clarence was, uh, he was quite a character. The man was well-liked. He was a rascal. A rascal? Tell me more. Well, he could, he would sing at the drop of a hat. Doo-wop. Singing under the uh, light posts. And in fact, one time Clarence uh, traveled to uh, Harlem with a group of guys to sing at the Apollo. How'd he do? I don't think he did too well down there, but the fact that they took off from Hartford to the Apollo to sing, and uh, he could be a rascal, but he wouldn't harm. Now, when you say he's a rascal, like, would he, would he flirt with me? Would he, like, would he <laughs> tell some jokes? What, what would it be like for me? You said it best. <laughs> <laughs> you said it best. He, he always thought he was a ladies' man, and... Uh, most people who knew him knew his heart was good. In his later days, we tried to get him to go to the senior center. He would say to us, I don't want to be around those old people. So he was young at heart, huh? Young at heart. That's another good description of my brother Clarence. And, and I can guarantee you he would, he, would, he would have flirted with you. But he was, he was a kind, gentle soul, except when you got him angry. Oh, yeah? What would set him off? He was labeled as being slow as a kid. And when you misconstrue that and try to take advantage of him, I'm not a PhD, but I got common sense. And in our family, we were raised with a great deal of pride from our mother and father, uh, pride in ourselves. And he would get angry at anyone who would insult him intellectually. Don't underestimate him. When he was underestimated, he could get very touchy. But the majority of people who knew him loved him. And, and they, he became everybody's friend. That was Clarence. Oh, that is Clarence in my heart, at least. Nothing but smiles for the guy. That rascal Clarence Otis Brown. <laughs> if you could say something to him, maybe you do talk to him. What do you say? With Clarence and Dolores, I have to stop myself from wanting to call him, but wanting to call her. If I were to see him today, I'll say, you did it your way, brother. You did it your way. Sorely missed. I mean, think about it. One month, you lose two siblings. And you get angry when you talk about health disparity. Ain't nothing new. The health disparity question amongst African Americans has never been new. It's been like that for 400 years. What we, what's being done about it? You can well imagine. My siblings, we, we call each other a little more often now to, to boast up our energy. And the beat goes on. Tomorrow is still Thursday. Chicken's still laying eggs and cow's still giving milk. Hallelujah. And maybe we could sing under the street lamp. <laughs> That was Lou Brown, remembering his brother Chuck Otis Brown and his sister Dolores Lolo Brown Allen. Since this is the final episode of this show, I want to tell you about what's coming up next. I've been developing the idea for this new show for years. I really wanted to talk about things that many people may find difficult to talk about, from people who are experts on their own experiences. I wanted to humanize the stereotyped. I wanted to examine the nuances of how we react to and process the world around us, get personal, get vulnerable. 
Now, the last time I was in our studios was on March 13th, just three weeks before the show's original April 4th launch date. I was putting together the first set of promos for the show, and then the coronavirus hit our state. We held off on launching it, obviously, so we could debut the one you've been listening to for the past nine weeks. And because the pandemic is ongoing, I'll continue to discuss issues around coronavirus in different ways moving forward. But now, I want you to meet Audacious. What has my legacy been so far? How do I actually want to die? And diving into all those questions started fueling me up again, like I started to feel alive again through thinking about my own death. It's okay to stutter. You don't have to hide it, even if somebody laughs at you. That first day of homeless, my children kept hypothesizing as to where we were going to go. Did you buy a house, Mommy? Did you buy it in a nice neighborhood with no garbage? Um, Do we have our own bedroom? Is it a mansion? And I said, I can't tell you yet, because I couldn't. And I said, surely, God, there must be some ways, and we will not be on the street tonight. I spent a lot of time talking to people who've had mastectomies, both due to cancer and not. And a lot of it came down to this image that I had of this as an amputation. We only have two spots in camp that you are absolutely required to be nude. That's on the beach and at the pool. Every place else is clothing optional. We prefer to everybody to be nude all the time, but it's your prerogative. Fair. Yeah. Okay? So sit on a towel. Sit on Number a towel. Number one rule. Number, one. Number two rule, sit on a towel. There you go. That's a taste of what you'll hear on our new show, Audacious, with Kyone Wolf, every Saturday morning at 10 o'clock on Connecticut Public Radio. I hope you'll join me. Thank you so much for listening to Us in the Time of Coronavirus. It was very lovingly produced at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford by me and Katie Talarski. Very special thanks to Meg Fitzgerald, Kaza Eiersman, Beth Messina, Sarah DeFilippis, John Gibson, Bill Gusky, Leslie Silverman, Julianne Veracci, Joe Amon, and Ryan Karen King. Thanks to our chief content officer, Tim Rasmussen, and to our president and CEO, Mark Contreras, for getting behind this 100%. My email is cwolf at ctpublic.org, and you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at kionewolf. To hear all nine of our episodes in this series, go to ctpublic.org slash us. And to keep up with our new show, visit ctpublic.org slash audacious. All right, remember, be safe, wash your hands, and may tomorrow be a better day. Bye. Bye.